There we go. Welcome to the Tuesday night Bible study. We're here to study the book of Matthew, and we left off in chapter 11, toward the end, right around verse 20, 21, right in there. So Matthew has shown us Jesus Christ as the um, Messiah and proved it in a number of ways, um, not the least of which was the, the miracles that we saw after the Sermon on the Mount. We saw him um, explain the Old Testament law in 5, 6, and 7, chapters 5, 6, and 7. And then we saw uh, amazing miracles for two whole chapters showing his authority over sickness, over demons, over nature itself, uh, calming storms and what have you. And since then, we have seen uh, uh, Jesus's re the reactions of the Jews to Jesus. And so we're going to look at that today in chapter 11 and chapter 12. What you're going to see is rising um, uh, uh, angst toward him and hatred of him. Um, but I want to show you that there's some people that are cursed in these verses, and they're not anti-Jesus. What's going on here? In any case, um, We'll pick it up uh, in verse uh, 21 in a second, so that I know that those of you who are in this room are fully awake. Say, Amen. Amen. Good one. And those of you on Zoom, wave or just let me know you're awake. Great. Oh, Patty Glass raised her hand. I like that. In any case, let's read. Um, let's see, where do we want to pick it up? Yeah, let's pick it up in verse 21. He's going to say, Whoa to a bunch of, and that doesn't mean stop like when you're riding a horse, it's a way of denouncing them or reprimanding them. It's, the, it's a word that pronounces doom. It's like saying, alas, oh no, this is very bad. And here they are. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Before we continue, I forgot. Many of you emailed me. Some of you texted me asking about Ron. Last week, Ron, sitting in this row here, second row, had an, uh, a diabetic shock episode um, and was kind of slumping over, which a lot of people do when they hear me preach, they fall asleep, but that was different. Anyway, thank God we had a couple nurses here and a at least one diabetic who helped him. Ambulance came, he's fine, he was in church Sunday. So a lot of people have asked about what was going on with him, um, he's fine. Uh, okay, so woe to these cities. And then he says, if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. But I tell you, it'll be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment, verse 22, than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? That's his headquarters for his ministry. No, you will go down to Hades. Another word for, you know, the place of departed spirits. Not good. It's not hell quite because there still has to be the judgment. Then people are sent to hell. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day, but I tell you, it'll be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. What's going on here? Well, what's interesting is these cities did not kick him out of their town. They didn't persecute him. They didn't hate him. 
There is a third response besides receiving Jesus and loving him and understanding that he's the Lord and bowing to him and making him your Lord and Savior. The other extreme is the Pharisees. They hate him. Next chapter, they're going to plot how to kill him for the first time. The middle response is eh, indifference. They saw the miracles. Oh, nice. I'm not willing to make a commitment but they had a lot of proof. So this little section here is about him cursing these cities based on one thing. And it ends up being the thing that everybody in the universe is judged by, and that is how much spiritual light you've been given. You and I know the Bible. We know enough of it. We understand the Christian story of Jesus Christ. More responsibility comes with that knowledge. For the person that barely knows anything, God doesn't judge him as harshly. That's why he says they had a lot of proof. You say, where do you see that? The miracles. Remember the miracles, the Bible calls them signs. Signs point to something. It's not a miracle for the miracle's sake, like a David, David Copperfield thing, a Harry Blackstone, magicians, Harry Houdini. Voila, there it is, a rabbit out of a hat. Every miracle points to something about Jesus Christ, his authority, his deity. We ought to be looking at that saying, who is this person that can calm storms, raise the dead, etc.? So he says, as a judgment on them, pronouncing woe, uh, uh, if the miracles were performed in you, had been performed in, and then he says, Tyre and Sidon. In the Old Testament, again and again, Tyre and Sidon, pagan area known for Baal or Baal, B-A-A-L, worship, which was a pagan god, he's saying it'll be a little better for them in judgment. Wait, are you saying they'll go to heaven? No, but this, these verses and others teach degrees of punishment in hell. And there are other verses that teach degrees of reward in heaven. So these people had the evidence. So he's reprimanding them, denouncing them. Greater light greater responsibility. You're responsible for the knowledge that God gives you. Uh, Luke 12, 48 says, to whom much is given, much will be required. So it's what you do with it. You can say, I understand it. That's great. Has it changed your life? No. I saw the miracles. Yeah, that's great. He's, he healed my sister. See you later. They didn't change their life one bit. Some some people, we have a tendency to think, so-and-so, Harold over here, is not a Christian. If I could just show him the evidence, he'd come to Jesus. You know what this says? Not necessarily, right? God has to call them. We're going to see that in this passage as well. Um, okay, so here's the, the Tyre and Sidon is a Gentile place, pagan, Baal worship, um, and they're going to get less punishment than the Jews who knew the Old Testament. They knew the Messiah was coming. They've seen all the evidence. It's time for a decision. And so I'm going to say that although there are three positions, I love Jesus, I hate Jesus, and I'm indifferent, there really are only two. Because no decision is a decision. If your car stalls, this is an old story, your car stalls on the railroad track. And you can see the trains coming. It's about a mile away. And you're thinking, boy, this car is only a year old. You're trying to start it. And let's see, I could run. And the train's going to hit the car. I can't stop. 
or I could stay here and keep trying to start it. I can't really make up my mind. What's going to happen? The train's going to hit your car. You're going to die. No decision for Jesus, especially when you've been given this kind of evidence, is a decision. That's the point of these uh, scriptures. Romans 1, 2, and 3, I've gone over this several times with you, presents each chapter the three lights. And they all start with the letter C that God gives. Light number one in Romans 1 is the light of C, creation. That, that people have a general sense. You can't know God fully looking at the trees and a baby being born and puppies and grapes growing on the vine. But a logical person, there was a beautiful, how many saw the rainbow today? Wasn't it awesome? Man, Jeff saw a double rainbow, so you're more holy than most of us. Anyway, uh, <laughs> the point is, you can see creation, and if you're a thinking human being, you th say, there's no way this just happened. It's clearly designed. The human body is clearly designed. But from there, th pagans that don't even receive that light, the light of creation, and look for more are condemned in Romans 1. Romans 2 is about the Jews who not only have the light of creation, they have the light of sea, conscience, through the word of God, the Old Testament, which they have, which tells them what they ought and ought not to do and who God is and what he expects. If they've rejected the light of conscience, and by the way, everybody has the light of creation, and everybody, including non-Jews, Gentiles, has the light of sea, conscience. We know deep down when we're doing something's wrong, I shouldn't be doing this, but nobody will know, and just this once or twice or twelfth time, and that's it. Um, the third light in Romans 3 is the light of Christ. Respond to the light of creation. Respond to the light of conscience. God gives you more light. However much light you've been given, there's more responsibility. But the second one is even more amazing, uh, and that is verse 23. And you, Capernaum, that's his headquarters, they saw a lot of miracles. These cities are all very close together north of Jerusalem. Will you be lifted to the heavens? In other words, are, are you saved? No, you'll go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, as in Sodom and Gomorrah, yes, the most uh, renowned place for absolute sin and perversion sexually. Angels show up in Sodom, and the men of Sodom come and ask at the door if they can have sex with the angels. I know it sounds crazy. Go read Genesis. You'll find out I'm right. He's saying it'll be better for them. They're still going to hell, but they didn't have that much light given to them. Pagan uh, place on the day of judgment than for you because they didn't respond to the light they had been given. There's a responsibility. That's the point of those scriptures. Okay. Um, just looking at my notes here. Capernaum was his headquarters. They were very, very hardened, but there was no decision, just a kind of an indifference. Um, let's see. Okay, let's keep rolling. At that time, verse 25, Jesus said, I praise you, Father. He's suddenly, spontaneously going to pray out loud to his Father. At that time, meaning right, ar right around when he had just pronounced th this curse on them. 
At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned or prudent, some translations have, and revealed them to little children or babes. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. So we start out here with Jesus praying to his Father out loud, and we get to eavesdrop, if you will. So uh, Jesus is saying to the Father uh, with a, a note of joy and sarcasm, both. Joy first. Watch. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, or thank you, God, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have done two things, and they're surprising. You have hidden these things. What things? The gospel, who Jesus is, salvation, what the miracles point to. This says, and some people have problems with this, but I didn't write Matthew. Your problem's not with me. God not only reveals them to certain people, he hides them from certain people. In a Western culture, the first thought that pops in your mind is, well, it doesn't seem fair to me. Equal access to the, listen, there's equal access to the sea of creation. There's equal access to the sea of conscience. But there's something else going on. Inside of each person to one degree or another, there is a level of pride. Okay? Those people that don't need the gospel, that's the indifferent ones, Chorazin and Capernaum and the others, Bethsaida. There's a, I'm okay the way I am. God loves me just the way I, I don't need a Jesus or a Messiah. Then there's the prideful ones that think I'm already saved. I'm a Pharisee. I'm a legalist. I'm earning my way to salvation. I'm sure my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. I'm in. Those kind of people, God actively hides the gospel from them. Forever? Not necessarily. Paul is a good example. God hid the gospel from Paul. So proud, a Pharisee of Pharisees, persecuting Christians, couldn't see it. But in grace, what does he do? He humbles Paul, blinds him, knocks him down, and says, why are you persecuting me? And then gives him back his sight, and he becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. It's a beautiful story. So he's praising his father for the beauty of the gospel. Here's why. You've hidden these things from the, and now he's being sarcastic, the wise and the learned. They think they're wise, the Pharisees, and I'm very educated. I have four degrees, a PhD, and they think they're wise. So he's being sarcastic or facetious there. You've hidden them from the wise and learned and revealed them to babes or little children. So who gets the gospel revealed according to this? Little children. What do you mean? Just little kids? No, no. Most of you were adults when you came to Jesus. Some of you were not. What it means is the spirit of the person, the, the actual soul of the person is very childlike. What does that mean? Humble, dependent. They recognize, I need you, God, right? As the opposite of pride, which says, I don't need anybody, right? So God is actively involved in hiding or revealing 
the gospel. If somebody is proud and very educated and God humbles them somehow, or they realize and get humble on their own, he might just reveal the gospel to them. But it's an interesting verse, isn't it? Uh, these two verses. I praise you, Lord of heaven and earth. You, who? God the Father. Hid these things from the wise and learned. Revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, verse 26. This is what's pleasing in your sight or what you were pleased to do. So this is the doctrine. We don't have to spend a lot of time on it. Some people have a hard time with it. The doctrine of divine election, that God chooses who will be saved. Um, Ephesians 1 says that he, God, chose you, believers, before he made the world. You say, I wasn't around then. <clears throat> I wasn't either, and I'm pretty old, but I wasn't around then. How can that be? He's God. He chose you. I don't understand it. It certainly can't be who deserved it. But for his own reasons, he chose us before the foundation of the world. You can read John 6 for more about that. Um, let's see. And it pleased God to reveal things to those who know they're not that smart. Now imagine if the gospel was like calculus. Really smart people get it. All these others are just idiots. They're too stupid to understand calculus. I would be in the stupid department. Calculus to me, right? Uh, chemistry, you know, physics. Some people have a gift in those areas. Great. Don't let it go to your head. Imagine if the gospel was that way. In Hinduism, in India, they have the caste system, C-A-S-T-E. The wealthy aristocrats are the privileged ones, and they are being rewarded from a past life when they lived a pretty good life. The poor people, the maimed, the beggars, don't help them in Hinduism. They tell you, don't give them food. They're getting their punishment. This go around in their reincarnation. Don't you love that the gospel is for anyone? The simplest people, like you and me, can understand it. It's been said that the gospel is a body of water. It is so shallow that a child can wade in and swim and understand, right? And yet it is an ocean so deep, Jacques Cousteau can't find the bottom. You want to keep studying the word? I encourage you to. You'll never find the bottom. You'll never say, I got it now. We all keep learning. So he chooses who he'll reveal it to, and he reveals it to babes, those that are humble, those that know they need a Savior. May I say, Matthew 5 said it. First beatitude, do you remember? Blessed are the poor in spirit, the ones who know they're bankrupt spiritually. I need you, God. I'm dependent. I admit it. Oh, Christianity is just a crutch for you people. Amen. I need one on each arm, spiritually. Uh, don't be proud, right? Okay, so he's going to take this truth and take it to another level. So I'm, I want to make sure you get the first level, which is he's, Jesus on earth, fully God and fully man, son of God, is praising his father for choosing and hiding, choosing the gospel and revealing it to them, uh, choosing the saved and revealing it to them, hiding it from the proud. With me so far? 
Okay, so that's pretty easy to understand. This was what you were pleased to do. It pleased God to do it that way. Verse 27. Now he turns it on its head and says, All things have been committed to me by my Father. Wait, does that include? It's all things. You ever all-inclusive? You mean the revealing and the choosing? That's what we just talked about. All things, he says, have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. Why? First of all, let's stop there. Because they lived together for all eternity before the world was created. Not for a thousand years, not for a trillion years, forever. In the beginning, John 1.1 1, 1 was the Word. That's Jesus in John 1.14 and 1.18. And the Word was with God, and the Word is intimate fellowship face-to-face, -face, and the Word was God. They knew each other so well, they still do. Jesus knows the Father, we're about to find out. No one knows the Son except the Father in all totality. And no one knows the Father, that's God the Father, except the Son. In other words, not you Pharisees. No one knows the Father except the Son. If that's where there was a period, we'd be in big trouble. We'd be in darkness spiritually, because from that you would say, well, nobody really knows Jesus except the Father. I get that. No one knows the Father God except Jesus. I wish he would share it, but there's not a, a period there. There's a comma, or in mine, there isn't even a comma. No one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Who's doing the revealing now? Jesus. Uh, let's see. So the Son chooses to reveal the Father to some people. The Son is doing miracles in a general sense, preaching gospels in a general sense, broadcasting it out there in his time. And it's broadcast today on the airwaves and on the internet as well. And you and I can witness and witness who brings the increase. God, Christ chooses who he will save. You and I don't get to choose. We are planting seeds. That's going to come in a couple of chapters from now. It's his job to bring the growth. But our job is spread the word. Let God do the work. Don't be discouraged if you spread the gospel to Harold and he says, I don't really need that, but thanks. If it works for you, good for you. Just keep spreading the gospel. He, Jesus interpreted the Old Testament. He claims that he reveals the Father. This is an important verse, folks. What it means is if you want to know what's God like, as I said earlier, in a general sense, you can look at creation and say it's beautiful. He's unbelievably creative. And he is loving because he put us on this planet where there's abundant fresh water, food, uh, climate, most of the planet. Okay, the North Pole's a little cold, I agree. And at the equator, it gets a little warm, especially in the desert, but it's very habitable. When you study other planets, I took an astronomy class from Dr. Einerson at San Jose State back in the 1930s. No, I'm just kidding, but it was a long time ago. And he was a brilliant man, PhD. And my friend and I went up and asked him afterwards, with all the planets and everything out there in space, the billions of galaxies, surely there has to be another planet that has life somewhere. 
And he said, absolutely not. And we said, what? Why? Very open-minded guy. And he said, there's 40 criteria necessary for life that are all present on planet Earth. And as you study other planets, they're not there. Two of them are on that one, four on that one, six on that one, one on that one. We won the lottery here 40 times. It's not going to happen again. If I won the lottery 40 days in a row, wouldn't you go, he's cheating, hello, something's going on here, right? I wish, I'll, I'll loan you each $100 if you want. Anyway, just kidding. Uh, Jesus is saying, I have the authority to reveal God to people. Jesus claims in John 14 to be the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him because of his sacrifice. But we know God's personality because of, watch Jesus if you want to know, what's God like? He's so slow to anger. Who does Jesus come down on the hardest? Do you ever notice? It's not the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the drunks, the, you know who it is? Religious hypocrites. From that, you can understand that God the Father feels the same way. Okay. All things are committed to me by my Father. In Matthew 28, he's going to say at the end of this gospel, uh, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Go and make disciples, right? Jesus Christ is the one person that you, what you do with him determines your eternal destiny. Uh, revealed the children. You already talked about that. So no one knows the father except the son, not in a full sense, but the son reveals him to whomever he wishes. So if that sounds a little harsh and a little closed off to people, and it sounds like, doesn't it? It's all God's doing. He either revealed it to her or he didn't, or to Harold or to me, or he didn't. Here is the other side of election. And let me warn you, it's kind of hard to understand. Election, God chooses who he will reveal himself to. Jesus chooses who he'll reveal the Father to, who will get saved. With me so far? And all of a sudden, here comes what's called the great invitation. Verse 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden or burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So three words appear a lot there. Did you get it? Yoke, burden, rest. So what's going on here? I thought you said, Joe, God chooses. Yes, he does. But when he chooses you, the human being has to respond to that invitation and accept it. Both are true. It's not one or the other. So um, what's going on here is the ones who respond are usually the poor, the ruined sinner, the one burdened with a conscience uh, about sin. So let's look at the invitation. First thing, verse 28, do you see it? Come to me. You say, yeah, move on, we get it. Now listen, 
If you're over there and I say, come to me, what do you have to do? This is kind of a dull, you got to leave where you are in life, right? No, I want to stay where I am. I got my party and animal friends, man, and I want to accept Jesus and still get high. No, no, come to me. Come to me involves leaving some place, some things, some people, right? Come to me. Notice it's not come to Christianity. Come to a set of doctrines. Christianity is doctrine, things we believe. You can make a list, but it's Christianity, listen, is a person. Come to Jesus Christ. Come to him, not high-fiving him like you're an equal. We come humbly with a needy and humble and um, submissive attitude. Come to me. Okay, who is this? Who's getting the invitation? All you well-educated, wealthy, sure of yourself, weary, burdened. Now listen, in the immediate context, the main meaning of weary and burdened is the same as poor in spirit. He's talking about spiritually weary of trying to keep up with all the Jewish laws. He's talking to Jews here and trying to live up to all the dietary laws and all the washings and all the sacrifices and all the Sabbath laws, which we're about to get into. That's what weary and burden has to do with. That's why chapter 12 follows right after this. We'll get into that in a second. He's speaking to those who are so tired of their sin, tired of feeling lost. And he's saying, come to me, the ones that are weary, the Pharisees were not weary. They weren't burdened. They didn't hear this. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. The idea is weary is I've worked to the point of exhaustion. Exhaustion. Burdened is I have so much weight on my shoulders, I can't even stand up. Picture me with three 90-pound bags of cement on my back. I'd be on the ground probably, right? Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. And I will give you rest. You say, is that what we need? Let's talk about rest. I want you to notice only he can give the rest. Rest is Shabbat. It's Sabbath. It's the same thing. He's in a way saying, I'll give you Sabbath. The word means rest. What do you mean rest? If they're weary and burdened from trying to live up to keeping all those laws, he's saying, I'm the one that can give you rest from all that. The irony, the ironic thing is, how do you get rest? You put a yoke on. Wait, a yoke is a work thing. It's a harness put on two animals. We'll talk about it in a second. That's the way you get rest? Listen, otherwise you keep working and working at living up to some standard, living up to the standard of others, living up to the standard of God, and we just can't live the perfect life. We just can't do it. because. I don't know if you know this, but the way to get to heaven, there's actually two. Believe in Jesus, number two. Number one, just live the perfect life and don't sin. Simple. Too late for all of you and me. Way too late for me. So we can't do it. That We need a Savior. That's the only way to get rest. Because otherwise, Blaise Pascal, how many know that name? Anybody know that name? A lot of you. Famous uh, mathematician, philosopher, Christian. 
He came up with the idea that inside of every human being, and you can't see it on an x-ray or when you cut somebody open, but inside of every human soul, there's a God-shaped vacuum, a big hole. And we all know it. Even pagans know it, and they try to stuff stuff in there. Money, drugs, sex, power, fame, doing good deeds even. That's a nice thing. Now I've done enough. Why don't I feel full? The only thing that will fill that void is Jesus Christ, God living inside of you. Okay, there's so much here. Um, so it's an invitation. On the one hand, God chooses. On the other hand, it's an invitation. On the one hand, God chooses. On the other hand, whosoever will may come. But we have to receive the invitation and accept it and come to him, leaving some things behind. We come bowing humbly. I will give you rest. The reason he can give you rest is that perfect life you were supposed to live, he did it. That horrible death you and I deserve and hell forever, that punishment, he took that too on the cross. So that's why he's about to say it's easy. It's way easier than trying to live up because you'll never get there. I'll give you rest. In a broader context, does this also refer to those generally burdened and weary? I believe it does. Those are the ones God has their attention. My old pastor used to say, the only time that he spoke like this, I won't do it. But anyway, I have one friend that watches it always said, do Pastor Kraft. Pastor Kraft since Santa Cruz, he passed away a long time ago. Little short, kind of chalky, stocky guy that walked kind of like a penguin, but he was brilliant. And he used to say, the only time some people come to Jesus or look up to God is when they're in a hospital bed looking up because there's nowhere else to look. And he's right, right? Are you going through a storm? Maybe God's trying to get your attention. That's how he would say it. Anyway, brilliant guy. So he'll give you rest. God is caring and loving. We just got done with the word rest. What's the next three words? Take my four words, yoke. Now a yoke is, we have a farm and we have an ox, ox that is nine years old and has been plowing fields most of its life. It's got it down. It knows to stay in line with the farmer, plow straight lines of, in the rows and work hard and stay in step with the farmer but we also have this young ox that's totally untrained. You try to put a yoke on that ox on its own, it'll never work. What they do is yoke together. It's a harness made out of wood with leather. The ox that's older, that's been plowing for a while with the young, inexperienced, uh, rambunctious, rebellious ox who learns to stay in step with the trained one. To, and I don't mean me, I mean God, Christ. And to stay in straight lines. And eventually, he'll be old enough, he'll train another ox. Jesus has a yoke. In the 60s and 70s, you know what word was used a lot? Free, freedom total freedom, sexual freedom, drug freedom. I can do anything I want. You know what? All those people were not free, right? It feels so good. 
Human beings are by nature sinners. If left to our own devices, you let people be free, you can see what goes on in right a lot of cities in America, around the world. So Jesus has a yoke. You say, this sounds like work. There is work, but he says his yoke is easy. Why is that? Because we're yoked to someone who loves us. It's his yoke. Did you notice that? And we're yoked with him so that we learn to walk with him. A young ox might want to get ahead of the other ox, right? And now they're going to go in a crooked line. Um, Or an untrained ox that's very old might be too slow and walk not in step. And now they're going the other direction. We walk in step with Christ. You don't start like that. It takes time. Imagine in your life that you have God's perfect path for your life. Can you picture it? Through um, a forest and there's a little bridge and there's like a stream on the right and a river up ahead on the left and mountains and the sun's coming through the trees. It's just a beautiful path. That's God's path for your life. What you and I have been doing is walking that path and straying off to the right because we saw alcohol or sex or stealing over here looks good. Every time we get off the path, we get injured. We get poison oak. We get bitten by something. We get lost. We need a yoke. No, I'm just going to walk Jesus's path by myself. I'm going to do it. No, you're not. How wonderful that part of his yoke is he puts God, the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, inside of us which is a louder conscience when you're starting to get off the path. Woo, woo, you get the little siren. Not, not that sound actually, but I'll do it for you if you want. The point is he lets you know, stay on the path. There's so many glittering and shining things in our path that interest us, that get us off track one way or the other. We need the yoke of Christ. It's a gentle yoke. It's a yoke of absolute love. The Jews had put heavy burdens on people with the law and the guilt and the consciences. We're about to learn about all the man-made rules they had uh, that they added to the Bible. So we have to come to him. We have to believe and we have to accept his invitation and respond. So Now we've talked about this yoke situation. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, NIV has. Literally, it's learn of me. Learn about me. He's saying, I am the most, Jesus is saying, he is the most interesting person in the universe. And you know what? He is. The more you learn about him, the more you love him. The more you learn that walking with that yoke not getting ahead of God. You ever get ahead of God? And follow me, God. I know what I'm doing. And then you're off in the weeds again, right? Or lag behind and God's going, we're going over here. No, I don't know. Walking in step with God. Submitting oneself to the leading of another. To do that, you got to trust him. That's why we need to learn about him. Learn of him. Um, we already talked about that. Listen to First uh, Peter 2.21. Um, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Not on your own, wearing the yoke 
It's invisible, but it's there. Here's another one. Whoever claims to live in Christ must walk as Jesus did, 1 John 2, 6. So we willingly take the yoke. An ox does not. An ox has to be forced. Hold him down, Harold and Jeff. Hold him while I put the yoke on him and strap him in. If the ox that's being trained wants to disobey and go faster or go to the right where he's not supposed to, the yoke is designed to chafe his neck and injure him to where it hurts like a bit in a horse's, uh, you know, all that stuff. Okay, so uh, it's not a heavy yoke. It's a light yoke. And it's another paradox. Paradox number one, Paradox is an apparent contradiction, but it's not. Paradox number one, God does the choosing. He reveals to certain people, not to others. But on the other hand, come to me. All you are, we have to respond. Paradox number two, you want to be free? Wear my yoke. What? Both are true. Uh, kind of an amazing thing. So um, the other analogy besides the path analogy for your life and mine is you drive the car of your life. And you and I don't want to admit it, we're horrible drivers. You ever see Rain Man? I'm an excellent driver. Remember that movie? You're not an excellent driver. When you drive the car, I'm, I know for me, I'm always crashing into stuff. So I want to sit in the passenger seat and let Jesus drive, but I still want to be close enough to the wheel that I can you know, get in the back seat and just let him drive. Let him be your Lord. That's what lordship is about. His will, not yours or mine. Um, let's see. Keep your finger here and go to John chapter 1 with me very quickly. I should have done this earlier, but this is my first week of teaching, and I'm get, just getting the hang of it. John chapter 1. He talks about the word in chapter 1, verse 1. And then in John 1.14, he says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That's the word tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. We've seen his glory. That's Jesus. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father. So the word is Jesus. With me so far? Now go down to verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only that's Jesus, who is at the Father's side, has revealed him, has made him known. Jesus reveals the Father to us. Okay, um, now go back to Matthew, but don't go all the way back. Go to Matthew 23. Matthew chapter 23. These little detours are good because they keep you awake. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Okay, not as awake as you were. John, I mean, Matthew 23. Verse 2, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must obey them and do everything they tell you to, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up, listen, heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders. Remember, weary, heavy laden? But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. The Pharisees loved the control of making up man-made rules to make it so hard and make themselves look so holy to obey. Okay, we already talked about that. Mm -hmm. um, in Romans 13, we're told to put on Christ like a garment or like a 
yoke, if you will. Okay. To take his yoke means to accept his will as our universal rule of action. Not my will, but your will be done. To be able to say that. And here's the hard part. Listen, when your will is A and you really want A and you find out he wants B, being a Christian is saying, because you want B and I want A, I'm choosing B every time. You will never regret that. He keeps you on that path that is glorious and you avoid all kinds of grief and injury and what have you. So it's entire submission wearing that yoke. It's a lifelong thing. Learn of me, walk obediently. You can't know inherently God. You have to walk with him and learn of him. Where do we learn of him? By walking with him, but you learn in the word of God, don't you? That's why we're kind of here in this Bible study, aren't we? To learn of God and to eat the treats back there, but mostly to learn of God. Yes. Uh, in, in Philippians 5. Philippians. Uh, Philippians 2, 5. is another verse that goes along with that verse. Philippians 2, which one? Uh, verse, two, uh, verse 5. And actually you can read what Jesus He's saying go to Philippians. They can't hear you on Zoom, so I'm repeating. Yeah. Go, Philippians 2, 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or held on to, but he made himself nothing. There's the humility. Taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. This is Jesus. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient. Listen, how far did he go in his obedience? Even to death even death on a cross. What's the result? Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name. Beautiful. Yeah, it does tie right in. Way to go, Jeff. You get an A for today. And you saw the double rainbow, which predicted. That's another thing. Okay. Um, let's take our two-minute break at this point, and there's going to be some snacks in the back, I have a feeling. And we'll see you in two minutes. Don't go away. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. Those of you on Zoom, hang with me two minutes. I'll be right back. Don't go away. There we go. Welcome back to the Tuesday night Bible study. We're eating um, snacks. And if you show up, you can have them too. Uh, Wendy pointed out to me, and it's in my notes. I just forgot to say it. Those cities that he cursed Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Capernaum. Do you remember that? They're all in ruins today. Right next to those cities is, is the town of Tiberias. He didn't condemn them. It's still there and thriving. God doesn't kid around. In any case, um, let's dive back in, shall we? We are to take his yoke, to learn from him. He is, let's re keep reading the rest of the invitation. Take my yoke upon you, verse 29, and learn from me. We're in chapter 11. For I am gentle and humble in heart. You ever had a really rough boss? Uh, some of you, yeah, uh, me too. Um, he, he's not that way. Christ, although he's fully God and reveals the Father, God is, Christ is gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest. Now we learn more about rest. Listen, although there's a physical aspect to it, 
Rest for your souls. Now, have you noticed that we are a work-heavy culture in the West here? Um, have you noticed how many terms at a funeral, how many terms about death have to do with rest? We laid so-and-so to rest. R.I.P., rest in peace. Oh, poor so-and-so, may God rest his soul. There's a sense in which all of us, Tim Keller has a sermon about this where he talks about the book. Anybody ever read the book, The Trial by Franz Kafka? It's an amazing book. It's a weird book. This guy is arrested and he's going to be put on trial and he's not told why he's arrested or why he's being put on trial. The whole book. And the point of the book is that everybody, everybody is on trial. And we're trying to prove ourselves to our spouse or our parents or our boss or our peers or something. And, and we, never, we never feel like, I'm okay. Until you come to Christ, the God-shaped vacuum is filled. He's leading your life. And those things that used to give you um, satisfaction because I pleased my father or whatever, nothing against pleasing your dad, but I'm saying that's not the ultimate thing. Pleasing your dad in heaven is. So his yoke is easy comparatively because he lived the perfect life. He enables you to not sin to the extent that you and I submit to the Holy Spirit. I'm gentle and in, in, humble and gentle in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That rest, listen, is eternal. This life is only the beginning. Yes, there's tribulation and trouble in this life. Jesus says, in this world, you will have tribulation. We might be on the cusp of seeing that in a bigger way. I don't know. I'm not predicting anything. I just have a feeling some of you do as well. But this is our human lives. Even if you live 105 years is that fast compared to eternity with Christ. Take my yoke and learn from me. I'm gentle and humble of heart. You'll find rest for your souls. May I say it the other way? If you don't have Jesus, you will never rest in your soul. Never. Verse 30, for my yoke is easy. My burden is light. All those commandments for the old um, covenant about which foods to eat and how to dress. There were so many laws that they added, 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 added on man-made rules that made it so hard to be a Jew and try to live up. His burden is light. He's a very loving God. Yes, it's a paradox that you find rest wearing a work yoke, but it's the only way your soul ever really rests. And by the way, every human being, even unbelievers, everybody wears a yoke. It's just that his is better and lighter. So there's people wearing a yoke of, I've got to make myself get in better shape and I've got to earn more money and I've got to get that promotion. I got to get that PhD and I got to get a bigger house than, than John has. And I have to, everybody's wearing a yoke of some kind. Jesus's yoke is the only one that satisfies and gets you there, puts you on that beautiful path. Okay. 
Uh, okay, I think we're almost done. Oh, I got so many notes about this. Um, mm -hmm. um, the yoke is also easy because Jesus loves us. It's a father's loving uh, yoke. Um, we already talked about that. It's for our own good. Um, here's something else. And this is why we have to come to him humbly. Because we don't really know what's best for us. We don't. Children, given the choice, will choose candy over broccoli every time. Come on. Put broccoli in a bowl and some candy in the other bowl. Let's try that experiment, shall we? In fact, we should have broccoli and then cookies and see how smart you people are. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Had to throw that in. Um, yeah, that's true as well. It's also easy, as we said, because the Holy Spirit is given to us. Um, what this is not is Jesus share the throne of my life with me. I'm willing to move over and share. No, it's get off the throne, and he's on there 100%. Um, there's a submission involved in salvation. Psalm 55, cast thy burden upon the Lord. Remember the heavy burden? And he will sustain thee. Trust thy soul and concerns to him. He will carry both you and your load. Ultimate rest for our souls. Um, come to me, you sinners, burden with your sin, with your efforts to earn favor, to please people, to please society, to, to try to please me so you get me to owe you, God says, and take Jesus' yoke. Salvation is a work of God from start to finish. That's the other reason the yoke is easy. He died our death, lived our perfect life, a free gift. Okay, chapter 12, we beat that dead horse. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Okay, very good. Chapter 12, what's going on in chapter 12? It's more of the reaction. Jesus has proved who he is. Matthew has proved his case. Now we're going to see, are they making a decision? And what kind of a decision is it? You'll see rising opposition to Jesus. Um, when Jesus forgave sin, if you remember, there was major opposition. And then to prove that he had the authority, he healed the guy that was paralyzed. Do you remember? Take up your pallet and walk. And the guy did. Proving if I can do that, I can forgive sins kind of thing. So to dive into chapter 12 properly, we need to discuss a word, Sabbath. Shabbat in Hebrew means rest. It was a uniquely, listen, Jewish institution. It was given to the Jews. Christians are not under the seventh day Sabbath. Why did God do that? It pictured creation where he worked for six days, God did, and rested on the seventh. By the way, God did not rest on the seventh day because he was so exhausted. God doesn't tire. He doesn't sleep, the Bible says. He rested as an example to us. It's not good to work seven days a week. Burning the candle at both ends will make you sick. It can even kill you if you don't get enough rest. So it's a uniquely Sa uh, uh, Jewish thing, the Sabbath. I'm not saying 
you shouldn't rest one day of the week and reflect on God. That was the other thing they did. But the Christian day of the Lord is now Sunday, changed from Saturday. To be literal, Sabbath was sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. That's how the Jews counted days. We count it from the day begins at midnight, kind of complicated. For them, as soon as the, I think it's two stars appear, anybody know? In the sky, for when it's clearly the day is ended. But it's sunset, which is a lot earlier now, and I don't like that. I like it when it gets dark later, but that's another subject. In any case, the Sabbath is a Jewish thing. They were to not do, listen, any work. But when you dig deeper in the Old Testament, you find out what they're talking about is not what the man-made laws ended up saying. What it meant was, are you a carpenter? Yes. Then work the other six days, and when the Sabbath comes, don't work to earn money. Got the picture? It doesn't mean you can't pick up that bucket. It's work. They overdid the man-made laws. We're about to see that uh, with their traditions. That's the heavy yoke. That's the heavy laden thing of the last end of the last chapter. Um, we already talked about that. The fact that we need rest and you can overwork. Have you noticed newer, maybe the last 20, 30 years, new, some newer appliances, space heaters, uh, coffee makers have a feature that if you leave it on and you go on vacation, it heats up and it turns itself off. Even the stupid coffee maker knows this is too much. I'm stopping now, right? And cooling off. Um, we need time to recharge, don't we? Okay, let's dive into chapter one. And you'll see where we're going here uh, to chapter 12, verse one. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples, so this is Saturday, unless it's Friday night, but it's probably Saturday. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, look, behold, your disciples are doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath. There were all kinds of rules about the Sabbath. Isn't it interesting? Where are the Pharisees following Jesus and his disciples around? Hello? Okay, number one. Do the disciples and Jesus own the field where there's wheat, where they're taking handfuls and doing what's called gleaning? Okay, gleaning is you take a little bit of uh, wheat or some other grain and you rub it in your hands like this and the chaff falls off and you end up with a little bit of wheat. They don't own the fields. Are you saying they're stealing the wheat? No. Why not? It kind of seems like it to me. Farmer John owns the field. He's going to shoot him if he sees him. Wrong. The Jews had laws about if you own a farm, a big field of wheat, not only were you to leave some of the wheat unharvested, but you were to allow the poor and travelers coming through, because there's no restaurants, there's no 7-Eleven stores, gas stations, the chance to not harvest, let's get your tools out, Harold, and no, just gleaning, take enough for yourself. When there's a human, here comes the key word for this passage, need. Okay, so that's what they're doing. They're not stealing it. In fact, this is not just allowed. 
um, in the Old Testament, it is commanded that it be done this way. Uh, in the Deuteronomy 23, 25, it's mandated. If you're traveling, it's okay to do that. The farmer can't do anything to you. Uh, like I said, you can't harvest, back up the truck and let's, but you can eat enough, a small meal kind of thing. Okay, they're not stealing, but it is the Sabbath. Isn't this work? You, would, you and I would go, come on. To them, it was work. The Jews, the Jewish leaders, wrote a thing called the Mishnah. Anybody ever hear of the Mishnah? The Mishnah was a commentary on the Old Testament written by brilliant rabbi Jewish scholars. They wrote, wait for it, 24 chapters. Just on, this is work, that's not. That's not work, that is work. Okay, I'm going to give you a few examples. A man could not carry anything in his right hand or his left hand or in the Sabbath. He can't carry anything across his chest or his shoulders, but it's okay to carry something with the back of your hand, with your foot, your elbow, in your ear, on your hair, on the hem of your shirt, in your shoe or your sandal. You can't tie a knot if you're a man, but a woman can tie a knot in her girdle. So if you're at a well and there's water and you want to tie a rope to the bucket to get water, you can't do it because you're a man. But technically, a woman could tie her girdle to the... Is this in the Bible? No, this is man-made rules. They just made it crazy. Okay. You could spit on a rock, but not on the ground. If you're carrying seeds, you could drop one seed... But two seeds, now you're sowing. That's work. Can you, are you getting the heavy burden and the weary and the, okay. There's many more examples. Um, totally crazy. Uh, let's see. So, and like I said, the Pharisees are following him around on the Sabbath. There was restrictions about how much travel you could do. There were uh, Jews in Israel, I have heard, that would not use a telephone because the punching of numbers would be considered work. Is that you, Michael, raising your hand? Uh, Just in a sentence, because I got to repeat it. Oh, I was just going to say that. Skip Heitzig in his sermon on this passage talks about, he mentioned the elevators. There's elevators in Israel, Sabbath elevator, non-Sabbath elevator. Skip Heitzig is a Christian. He's a Gentile who became a Christian. Uh, Calvary Chapel, I think it's somewhere in New Mexico. Anyway, he goes to Israel. He gets in the wrong elevator. He gets in the Sabbath elevator on the Sabbath. And he gets in the elevator, and he's, and he's in the back, and there's a bunch of people in front of him. So he says to the people in front of him, who are Jews, with the little yarmulke on, uh, floor number 14. Nobody will push the floor for him. So the elevator starts moving. Goes up to the second floor. The door is open. No one gets out. No one comes in. What? They wait. Finally, the door closes. Third floor, bing, the door opens, no one gets out. In other words, so that you won't work by pushing the button. Good one, Michael. It's in my notes I would have forgotten. The, the non-Jewish elevator, you can just push the button and go where you want. He got in the wrong elevator. 
they're so legalistic about, I wouldn't want to work. And listen, God gave the Jews the Sabbath as a blessing. That's the point that's going to come out here if the teacher ever gets his act in gear. Okay, let's go back to the text. So the Pharisees see this. They see them eating the grain. They're hungry. By the way, parenthetically, you know what this tells you? They're not loaded with money in this ministry, right? If they were, they would have, do you want the, the uh, burgers or do you want the fish or what do you want, right? They'd have so much food. They're hungry. They have nothing. So they do what's legal, what's mandated. And they say, you're doing what's unlawful. Your disciples are doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath. You're working on the Sabbath. Here comes his answer. Haven't you read verse 3, what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He's going to give him an example from the Old Testament. David entered the house of God. He and his companions ate the consecrated or show or holy bread. We'll come back to that, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Okay, what's going on here? In the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 21, David and his men are traveling. They are weak with hunger. There's nowhere to go. There's no farms around. It's wilderness. They find a synagogue. They go in the, or the temple, I should say, and they go in there, and there's the showbread on a table. They ask the priest, we'll come back to that. Could we please eat the showbread? I'm David. He's the anointed one, the king. By the way, Jesus is parenthetically saying, I, Jesus, am greater than David. Okay, what's showbread? Once a week, the priests would bake 12 loaves of bread and put it on a table very neatly as an offering to the Lord, where it would sit for one week, that bread. You ever had day-old bread? This is seven-day-old bread. The next Sabbath, they would make new bread. Ooh, they're working on the Sabbath. They'd make new bread, and the old bread gets taken away, and guess who could eat it? The priests. It's okay for them to eat it. It was an offering to God for a week. You got the picture? So there's the table. There's the bread. David comes in and says, we are weak with hunger. And the priests say, go for it. Technically, it broke the Old Testament law to do this. But human need superseded some legalistic, you can't do that, kind of uh, rules and regulations. Okay, so they eat the consecrated bread, the show bread. Um, yeah, and David was the Lord's anointed king. We mentioned that. That's important. That'll come back later. Um, so he says, haven't you read? By the way, he's talking to people that know the Old Testament inside out. So it's a little bit of a cut there. Haven't you read? Yeah, we've read. He entered the house of God. He and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, only for the priests. Implication, David's not a priest. His men aren't priests, but in a sense, they are. And what he's saying is, in your world, Pharisees, you don't consider me a priest, but I am. I'm about to offer the sacrifice for sin. And these guys are priests serving in the temple. Keyword coming up. Watch. So that's the first analogy. 
Or haven't you, verse 5, read in the law, Old Testament, that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath yet are innocent? In other words, you can't work on the Sabbath. The priests worked the most on the Sabbath. All the sacrifices, they had to kill the lambs, clean up the blood, pick up the sacrifice, put it on the altar. There's all kinds of washings they had to do, go get the, the water. It's all work. His point is, in the service of God, it's not work. And we are, he's saying, Jesus, Peter, James, John, Bartholomew, even Judas, we're working for the kingdom. It's not work. Uh, but he's about to really take it two steps further. Watch. Uh, um, yeah, the priest in, on the Sabbath duty desecrate the Sabbath. They break the Sabbath. And yet they're innocent. It's understood. I tell you, verse 6, something greater than the temple is here. What do you mean? In a veiled sort of a way, who's he talking about? Talking about himself. Something greater than the temple. Now, to the Jews, the temple was it, man. A beautiful building. Solomon built it. It had been destroyed. It was rebuilt by Herod the Great. It was still under construction at the time Jesus is ministering, but it was awesome. Big pillars and gold and very ornate. What's greater than the temple? Jesus. He's saying, I'm greater than the temple. What do you mean by that? Well, to understand, you got to ask yourself, what is the temple for a Jew? What was it? They haven't had one for almost 2,000 years. What is it? A place where God shows up and meets his people. It's a place where his people can learn of him. It's a place where people can worship him. It's a place where people can pray. It's a place where people can offer sacrifices. Go down that list again. Who is Jesus? The, the place where God comes and meets his people. Who is Jesus? The one that people come to to worship God because he is. The one that people can pray to in the name of the Lord Jesus we pray. The one who will give his, his own body as the ultimate sacrifice. He's greater than the temple. Why else is he greater? By the way, I, I stopped, but I was getting so many pages of why Jesus is greater than the temple. It was kind of getting a little ridiculous, I have to admit. Okay, the temple, I'm the head of the family. I bring my family for Passover. I have to bring a lamb without blemish, kind of a pain in the butt to bring it all this way. <laughs> and they have to check it out and observe, and then they cut it and they sacrifice it. And Every year we do it again and again. Not with Jesus. One sacrifice for all time, for all believers. Why else is Jesus greater himself than the temple? Because he's the ultimate high priest. Because he's the sacrifice himself. He's both the priest and the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. Um, if you lived a thousand miles from the temple... You had to make a long journey, right? Here we are thousands of miles from the temple. If we were Jews, we'd have to be making plans, Passovers, March, April, you know, we got to get over there. 
The temple of God is in you. You carry it around. You don't have to travel to it. We do travel to be together and worship together and don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together, but you carry around the temple of God. That could only happen if there's forgiveness of sins. Holy Spirit living inside of you. Okay. Uh, he's greater than a building. Why is that? Because the building could be destroyed. And it was. Because there was no more need for it in 70 AD, 40 years after, roughly after Jesus came and died. You just don't need this anymore, said God. And as a punishment for not believing in my son, there goes your temple. Hasn't been rebuilt almost 2,000 years. Because the temple of God is our bodies when we believe in Jesus. Um, it's where God came to meet his people. This is where, why Jesus shows up on planet Earth. Amen. It's where guilt is forgiven. That's Jesus. Uh, Jesus is greater. That's the theme, by the way, of the book of Hebrews, which says Jesus is greater than the prophets, the priests, the high priest, the king. Um, he's greater than the sacrifice at the temple. His blood is better than the blood of bulls and goats. So this one commentary mentioned this, and I thought about it and went, wow, I never saw that. He said, there used to be on planet Earth the ultimate temple called the Garden of Eden, where there was full fellowship with God face to face, but there wasn't even a need for sacrifice or prayer because you could talk to God, Adam and Eve, face to face. There was no sin. It was just a place of beautiful worship. And then Adam and Eve sinned, which we all sin as well. So we stamp our approval on their sin and everything changed. Um, in Revelation, turn to Revelation 21. I can't resist going here and we have time and most of you are asleep anyway. Revelation 21. Revelation 21. This is after the tribulation, after the seven letters, after the second coming, after the judgment. All that's left is for God to show you in two chapters, 21 and 22, a brochure for your future home in heaven forever. Chapter 21 of the book of Revelation. Um, and somewhere I'm going to be able to tell you which verse it is. <laughs> there it is. Verse 22, chapter 21. He's describing the beautiful city where we're going to live. I did not see a temple in the city. Huh. Why is that? Just like Eden. No need. Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. That's Jesus. How bright is the light there? Verse 23. The city does not need the sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And the Lamb is its lamp. Is that awesome or what? That's your future home. Whatever you're going through, whatever you go through to get there, it's all worth it when you look back. Um, let's see. Okay, back to chapter 12 of Matthew. So he's saying something greater than the temple is here. By the way, he also says in Matthew that he, Jesus, is better than the temple. He's better than Jonah. He's better than Solomon, who is a king. 
on the Mount of Transfiguration, chapter 17. We'll get there probably in five years. But chapter 17, he says he, he shows that he, Jesus, is greater than Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. Greater than. The whole book of Hebrew, Hebrews is a book written by a Hebrew telling other Hebrews to stop being Hebrews because the Messiah already came and Jesus is better than anything in the Hebrew religion. He goes through all of it. High priest, the temple, all of the sacrifices, all of that. Okay. So if he's greater than the temple, it's a veiled way of saying that he is God. Something greater than the temple is here. If you had known, verse 7, what these words mean, I'm back in chapter 12 of Matthew. If you had known what these words mean, this is God from the Old Testament. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, not the letter of the law. These men are hungry, my disciples. They're just taking a little grain that's called for in the Old Testament, mercy. Have a heart, in other words, not strict sacrifice. Uh, if you had known what those words mean, the rest of the verse says, you would not have condemned the innocent, calls his disciples innocent. For, here it comes, verse 8, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Ouch. It's another claim to deity. I am the Lord of, I am over the Sabbath. No Pharisee, even the high priest, would ever say that. He's saying it because he is. He's the one that the Sabbath pointed to. The Sabbath rest of the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus dying on the cross and rising from the dead. And the rest that he gives as a result to all who believe in faith. Um, how are we doing on time? Still going pretty good. Um, let's keep rolling. Verse 9, going on from that place, he went into their synagogue. Wait a minute. Is it still Sabbath day? Yes. Are they still watching him like a hawk looking for any little fault? Yes. Does he know that? Yes. He goes into the, the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. I think King James has behold a man with a shriveled hand. Anybody have King James? No. A man with a shriveled hand, the word for shrivel is dry, meaning lifeless, probably paralyzed. Um, whether it was a, a physical defect from birth or it happened over time, we don't know. But he's there in the synagogue. The man, although he's got a shriveled hand, you know what works? His legs and his feet. And he showed up for public worship. Beautiful. That's where good things happen. That's the other message here. A man with a shriveled hand was there looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus. They asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Jesus, I'm surprised, doesn't say, did you hear a word I just said? I just said mercy over the letter of the law. Is it lawful to heal? on the Sabbath. What they're implying is, if you heal this guy that's work, you're going to show yourself to be a heretic. Verse 11, he said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, 
Will you not take hold of it and lift it out, implied, on the Sabbath? Help, right? Get the rope, Harold. Let's get him out right now. Yeah, but it's the Sabbath. There's a need here, right? It's not life and death. By the way, the Jews in their man-made laws had said, you can practice medicine if you're a doctor on the Sabbath, but it better be life and death. Somebody breaks a leg, he broke his leg, you wait till tomorrow. You can, can you imagine? So the point is, a sheep is not as valuable as a human being made in the image of God. And if you, being merciful, will take a hold of your sheep if it falls into a pit, I'm reading verse 12 now, how much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Now listen, I love animals. We have a dog. We have a feral cat that lives outside. We have bunnies on our lawns. I like animals. You probably do too. Nothing wrong with that. But the Bible says people are of more value than animals. They're made in the image of God. Okay? Save the whales. Save the mosquitoes. People, save the people. I want a bumper sticker. Okay. How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. He just called himself Lord of the Sabbath, claiming to be God. Now he's going to prove it. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees praised God for the miracle and bowed to Jesus. Oh, no. It doesn't say that in your Bible. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Have you ever known someone that has, and you may be this person, um, a physical deformity? I had a roommate um, for a couple of years that, when he was a very tiny little boy, had one finger cut off accidentally, saw left on, long story. And I noticed, I knew him from all the way from junior high, high school. Um, and then uh, we met after college and stuff. And I, I ran into him and he needed a place to live. So he was my roommate. And I noticed that this hand was always in his pocket. And I said, why are you hiding that hand? I don't know. I feel like deformed. You know who cares about that? Who? You. You know who else? No one. No one. He could play guitar, but didn't like to play it because it would show. I have a feeling this man kind of hid that hand. And Jesus asks him to do something impossible. Did you see that? Stretch out your withered hand. Honest answer? Can't you see? I can't. He asks him to do the impossible. If he asks you and me to do the impossible, guess what? He will give you the ability to do it. Because instantaneously, the man obeys, and as he stretches it out, it's all healed on the Sabbath. We'll talk more about this next time. Most of you are asleep, and it's not the Sabbath, but it is a day of rest on Tuesday, isn't it? Let's, let, we'll take, pick up the story next time um, because we still have to talk about the Pharisees' reaction. Remember, this whole chapter is about people's reaction to Jesus. Some are indifferent. They're not indifferent. They want to kill him. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time we could be in your word. And we don't understand exactly why or how, but you chose us to believe. 
Help us to keep that childlike attitude, that humble, teachable, needy attitude that we realize our total dependence on you. Help us to wear your yoke proudly and walk with you because the path you have for us is way better than any path we might rebel and want to walk on. Thank you, God, that you offer us that yoke and your rest. May we live in that rest as we even wear the yoke and work for your kingdom. Thank you that the Sabbath requirements are out the door. We'll need to look at that next week, Colossians 2 and elsewhere. Thank you, Father, for a thousand gifts. Indeed, something better than the temple, better than Moses, better than the prophets, better than Jonah, better than the kings is in our hearts. He is our Lord. It is you, your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray all these things. Amen. Make sure you say hello to someone on the other side of the aisle, look across and you'll see someone. Those of you uh, here, thank you for being here. Those of you on the web, God bless you. See you next time. Thank you.